Well, if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to a very, very familiar passage probably to you. But imagine if you're like me, it's a very well-worn page in your Bible. Uh, we're going to Psalm 23 today. Psalm 23. Hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, on this New Year's Eve. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and it is a light unto our path. So I pray by it this morning as we tread familiar paths, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would remind us of your goodness. And as we turn the clock on another year, Lord, as we orient ourselves to what matters most, Lord, I pray that the statements of this psalm would be ours as well. That knowing who you are would change how we live. That these words would be our confession of faith. That because you are our shepherd, we shall not want, we shall not fear. And we know that we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I pray this morning that you would encourage us, that you would equip us, that you would challenge us, that you would change us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable with you this morning. Uh, I figured there were going to be less of you here, so I figured I was taking less of a risk by telling you this. Uh, But I'm kind of committed, so i got to do it anyway. Uh, My biggest fear, my biggest fear is heights. I am terrified of heights. Like, you know at Mercedes-Benz when you're going up the escalators all the way to, like, the nosebleed section? Like, I... Like, can't, like, get on the bar. Like, that's how scared I am. Now, I'm not scared, like, when you're in a plane and you're enclosed and you know you're safe. But, like, those freestanding heights, like, when it's just you and a bar and then, like, certain doom, like, underneath. Like, I just, I cannot do it. Like, it it freaks me out. And perhaps there's no place more that actually aggravated this fear of mine, of heights, uh, than my school. Uh, when I was in elementary school and middle school, uh, our school had this beautiful forum. We were also in a church, which is why we had it. But we had this beautiful like foyer with a spiral staircase. So our building was four floors. It was a basement and three floors. And then this whole room was filled in the middle with a spiral staircase that went from the top floor all the way to the bottom. And it was completely exposed. 
So like there was nothing around it that was kind of shielding you. So you could walk to the side of wherever you were on the spiral staircase. You could look over the side and you could see all the way down, kind of like a lighthouse. And then you could walk to the other side and you could see just kind of there was nothing really there to prevent you. Like no, there wasn't really a wall that would prevent you from kind of going over the edge. Uh, it was terrifying to me. And I remember when I was in probably first grade or so, uh, we had music to end our day. And because it was the last class we had, we were uh, in the music class when we had to be dismissed. And the music class was on the third floor of our building. And I had to get all the way down to the first floor. And there was only one way to go, the spiral staircase. So uh, I remember being absolutely terrified. Like it was a stress-inducing day when Thursday or whatever day I had to do this came around because I knew I was going to have to go down the spiral staircase. And that just gave me a lot of nerves. But I still thank the Lord to this day uh, that they didn't have me walk that alone because we're first graders. Uh, They had a safety patrol. How many of you remember safety patrols in your school? Or maybe you are a safety patrol. They had safety patrols and one was specifically put on the music room on whatever day this was to escort us down to the front. Now, this was more for the adrenaline junkie children who, you know, were always the risk of jumping over the side of the spiral staircase. But what I loved is that they would also comfort the scaredy cats like me. And they would hold my hand, and I remember they knew that I didn't, I, I couldn't look over the edge. So she would let me kind of walk in the middle of the staircase, and then another safety patrol would kind of come and buffet me. So I couldn't see out of both sides. So I was able to hold both hands, and I'm just kind of walking down with two people, three flights down this spiral staircase. And I have that picture in my head, and it always comes back around when I think about Psalm 23. Right? Because for many of us, that's what Psalm 23 is. Right? Peace and comfort and security and being led by someone safe. And, you know, I know that many of you know the words to this psalm by heart, that you have read these words countless times. And so a lot of what I'm going to say this morning, you already know. I tend to subscribe to the school of preaching where preaching is not necessarily just teaching, but it's a lot more reminding you of the goodness and the truths that God brings. But we all know this psalm by heart. And if you go out into the secular world, what you'll find is, you know, just baseline scriptures that find their way into so many different parts of our culture. You'll see that Psalm 23, maybe more than any other scripture in the Bible is revered by the world. Christians and non-Christians love Psalm 23 and the words that these comforts bring. And I've attended a funeral for a non-believer who had Psalm 23 read at their funeral. Just the words that they, the comfort and the peace that they talk about. And I think a lot of that is because there's just so much comfort when we think about someone leading us. Right? Somebody who goes before us. I, I always think that it was just so comforting when somebody takes time to lead me through a new venture 
or something that I'm learning and somebody takes the time to teach me or maybe it was a hobby that you learned for the first time or maybe it was when you were opening a business and you know, I always found it comforting when my parents, when we would park on the side of the, the road and my parents would get out of the car and they would make sure everything was safe before they came and opened my door. There was just something so comforting about it. There was something peaceful about somebody who had kind of, when we had a big decision to make or I had a big decision to make, somebody who had thought it through already thought through all the possibilities that I wasn't even aware with and could kind of lead me and talk me through those decisions. There's, there's something just so peaceful about that because when somebody is leading you, that means someone cares, right? Somebody cares. And when somebody cares about you, that means that you matter. And Psalm 23 is that, that because God is our shepherd, what does that mean? It means that God cares for us. And that we also matter to God. And friends, that's the cry of the human heart in this day and age. What you see all over our culture, from social media to the news, is that question, that longing that people are trying to answer. Does anyone else, do I matter to anyone else other than myself? Do I matter to anyone else other than myself? And Psalm 23 affirms that question. You do. That God is your shepherd. You matter to God. God cares for you. And so this morning, what I want us to look, like, or look at uh, is Psalm 23. And I believe that Psalm 23 is kind of similar to a confession of faith. Kind of similar to what we do with the Apostles' Creed where we state what we believe. There's three different I, I statements in Psalm 23. And we're going to kind of go through the structure of Psalm 23. But there's three different I statements. There's I shall not want... I shall not fear, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And each statement that David writes, it's filled with just a full bed of theology, but also testimony that God has walked with David and David has walked with God and he's experienced what it's like to follow him. And so he can make these declarations because this is who God has been in the past. He can trust that this is who God's going to be in the future. And as we embark on a new year, I always think it's good for us to reset expectations and maybe more than anything else, reset expectations with God. Because maybe over the, maybe the past year, your view of God has become a little bit warped and you've become a little bit cautious, maybe a little bit wary Maybe a little bit questioning of like, what is God's intentions with what he's walked me through in the past year? Perhaps you've put too many expectations on God and you feel like he's let you down this last year. Or maybe like others, you feel like you've forgotten God's good promises to you. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, I think it's good for us to renew our faith, renew our trust, remind ourselves of the goodness of who our good shepherd is and why we can live in these ways. I shall not want, I shall not fear, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So kind of jumping into it, uh, the first confession is that I shall not want or I shall not lack for anything. And so if you look at Psalm 23, Psalm 23 is kind of set up as three different pictures And there's three different relationships that kind of happen in each portrait that describe who God is and then kind of implicitly who we are as a result. And so this first picture is God as a shepherd. And as you look at each picture, 
there's an I statement that goes along with it. There's a declaration of faith that because this is who God is, this is what, or this is how I shall live. And so the first confession of faith in this kind of first section, verses one through three, is that I shall not want. I shall not want. And usually on a first read, uh, this statement can kind of be confusing in modern speech, right? Because that's the most well-known way of saying it, I shall not want. But we all know that that isn't always technically theologically true. Because I know that when I've walked with God, I have been on the receiving end of many unanswered prayers or many no's from God. And so can want mean what we usually think want to mean, where it's like anything that I desire, anything that I want. And so we know that that's not necessarily what it means. And so the better way to translate this would generally be, I shall not lack. I shall not lack for anything. There's not anything that you need that God won't make sure you have. If it is good for you, if it is good for what God is doing in your life, then you will have it. And I think that makes a lot of sense when you look at the first part of that section. The Lord is my shepherd. I want you to look at your Bible closely. You may have never noticed this before, but the Lord there is in all caps. It's in small caps. And whenever you see this in scripture, the Lord written in capital letters, but kind of in a small print, that is its way of communicating to you that that's not just the baseline word Lord. That is the word Yahweh. That is the name that God gave to the people of Israel to go to call God. And it, we, this goes back all the way to Moses and the burning bush. And I, I don't know if you know that story, but Moses is standing before uh, the burning bush and God calls to Moses from the burning bush. And he says, who, who are you? And God says, I am. Right, this powerful moment of Moses before God and God calls himself by his name, Yahweh, I am. And I've always found it interesting that that doesn't feel like a name, does it? I am. Because usually when we say I am, what does it follow? Something else, right? I am blank. It's, it's the start of a sentence, but it needs something else to fulfill it. But here it's just, I am, Yahweh, I am. There's nothing else to it. It's complete, it's sufficient, it has no need of anything else after the I am. And the reason that's there is it's to show you that God is complete, he's sufficient, he's whole. He's not dependent on his creation, He's not dependent on you or me to remain who he is, to remain God. He is Yahweh. He is I am. And friends, that's who's described as our shepherd in Psalm 23. The God who is all powerful, the God who has no need, the God who has no lack. He is the one who cares for us who do have needs, right? We're dependent creatures. God is not dependent, right? We have things we need. God does not. And so this psalm, from the get-go, it declares immediately that we are led by someone who doesn't need to be led. He has the wisdom and the power to take care of us. Because why? Because he's not concerned for himself. I watched a documentary on mountain climbers recently on Netflix. It was called 21 Peaks. It was really interesting. But one of the things that they'll talk about in these documentaries 
is the need for Sherpas when you climb a mountain. Because if you just came off the street and you're like, I want to climb Mount Everest, you would die. Before, probably before you reach base camp, but especially before you reach the summit, because you have no knowledge. You would succumb to the dangers of the mountains. So what you do is you have Sherpas who go before you and lead you up this mountain. And the Sherpas play a lot of different roles. They'll teach you where to go, how to step. They'll kind of set things up so that make sure it's safe for you to cross a, you know, a little gap or something. But they'll also carry your stuff as well. And I think that it's so interesting because you would think that as you're climbing a mountain, you're taking care of each other. But one of the incredible things about Sherpas is they're self-sufficient. They know how to take care of themselves. Their job is to take care of you. And I think that that absolutely changes the game because think about it. To best care for someone else, it's helpful when they don't need to be cared for. That's why you don't leave children with babies, right? Because if you leave a child with a baby, they don't know how to care for themselves, let alone care for somebody else. But when you have somebody who doesn't need to be concerned, when you don't need to be concerned about them, when they are self-sufficient, their focus is solely on you. And so here's the good news from Psalm 23. God is not a dependent God. He doesn't need your worship, believe it or not. He doesn't need your worship. God doesn't actually need your love. God doesn't need your approval. He doesn't need your affirmation. He doesn't need your offerings to remain God, to remain who he is. He is completely sufficient of himself. And so guess what? He is fully capable of leading you and guiding you where you need to be. I want you to notice the first section. And I want you to look at all the verbs. Maybe you can underline them. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. How many of those things do you do? You don't do anything. You just follow. God is the one who leads. God is sufficient and he's capable to lead you. And so we don't lack for anything because we follow one who doesn't lack for anything. We shall not want because God doesn't want and he can lead and provide for us. And so that's the first section. The second one uh, is it kind of shifts. It doesn't leave the shepherd imagery behind, but it kind of shifts to this new picture of a traveler and his companion. And we go from the quiet still waters to the valley of the shadow of death. And then we see this confession that I shall not fear. One of the underlying understandings of scripture, and this is really important when you read throughout the whole Old Testament, is that when we're talking about death, when we're talking about the valley of the shadow of death, we're not thinking in a modern way where death is an an event, where we're talking about the clinical flatline. Rather, death in the Old Testament and throughout all of Scripture is talking about the whole of life, the brokenness and the decay of all creation. And so ever since the Garden of Eden, we have been in the shadow of death. Each and every day, you, from the way that the Bible talks about the world, you have been in the shadow of death. You have seen the brokenness and the decay of the world. And so when we put it that way, we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death often, aren't we? And it's here where God leads us. 
It's here in the deep darkness where we find ourselves. And this is where David kind of brings this confession. He says, I shall not fear. And what is it that gives David the confidence to say that he shall not fear? For you are with me. For you are with me. And the Bible is not a book of coincidences or weird happenings. And so this statement isn't something that comes out of nowhere. This is a recognition of a promise that follows throughout all of scripture. And in fact, I would say, and I'll stand on this uh, soapbox, that this is the heartbeat of scripture. This is what scripture is all about. This very promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. That very line, I will be your God and you will be my people is stated 66 times throughout all of scripture. And if you were to kind of bump up to allusions to that phrase, you probably get somewhere 150, 160 times. This is the heartbeat of scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. And if you think about it, that's true. From the garden of Eden, that is what God has been trying to do throughout all of redemptive history. From the moment that God says, you will step on this head of the serpent and he will bruise your heel. That's a promise that one day, We'll be reunited together again, that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the heart of the Exodus story in the book of Exodus, that God takes the Israelites out of bondage and slavery and brings them to the mountain so that he can be his God and we can be, he can be our God and we can be his people, right? That's the hope of the prophets. If you ever read the prophets and you're trying to figure out what on earth am I reading, that's the heartbeat of the books is that God one day will bring all of the people together and he will be our God and we will be his people. And that's the hope of Christmas, right? That Jesus would descend and he would come and he would live among us and he will be our God and we will be his people. And if you go back to the very end of Revelation, the voice from the throne says, the dwelling place of God is with man. I will be their God and they will be my people. See, David says, we will not fear because God is with us. That's what the Bible tries to tell you every time you open it up, that he wants to be your God and he wants you to be his people. God is with us and God's not with us in some sort of reactive way. Where it's like, you know how if you're watching a child, you're with them, but sometimes they might run off and they might get themselves into trouble and so you react and you go get them out of trouble. It's not like God is with us in the sense that, you know, he'll, he's kind of around, but we kind of wander into the valley of shadow of death and God has to come rescue us and bring us out. No, God is with us in a very proactive way. He's leading us. He's guiding us. Each of our circumstances, each of our stories, everything God is weaving together, he's leading us. And he's, he might walk us through the valley of the shadow of death, but as Romans 8 says, he's working all things for the good of those who love him. And so what I love about Psalm 23 is sometimes you read it and you're like, well, the valley of the shadow of death is just kind of the brief interlude between seasons in quiet green pastures as a Christian. Right? We're, we're made for the, the quiet waters and the green pastures. But you know, sometimes we might venture through the valley of shadow, but then we're back to green pastures again. That's in some ways a denial of our circumstances. I don't know if I've ever lived where everything was good at one time. Right? Life happens in clusters. There's joyful moments mixed with sad moments. And so Psalm 23 is never about the denial of our circumstances. 
You see, it's actually about the fact that God is present in all circumstances. In the joyful, quiet waters, green pastures, and even in the valley of the shadow of death. So we don't need to fear because we know who's with us. Right? The one who conquered death, the one who rescued us from bondage and slavery. He may not pull us from the valley, but he'll always be faithful to lead us through it. See, David says, I will not fear because I know the promises of God. I know what God's story is. He wants to be with me and I want to be with him. As Pastor David Gibson says, uh, he wrote a book on Psalm 23. He says, numbered by Jesus, we are led by Jesus. Led by Jesus, we are protected by Jesus. Protected by Jesus, we are comforted by Jesus. We will not fear. Why? Because God is with us. The last part, uh, quickly, is that I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so this final portrait of God that we see, it's, it's a picture of a feast, right? God is the host. He's putting on the feast. Uh, and except this feast is an interesting feast, isn't it? The feast in the midst of your enemies, and you're the guest of honor. And I want you to notice, for just a quick second, uh, just the imagery that's in this section it's one of he prepares a table before you. He anoints your head with oil, which is um, an act of separating out, of making holy, of consecrating you. It's a special moment. It's an intentional moment. My cup overflows. All of this is abundance and celebration imagery, right? It gives you this sense of there's a lavish welcome. Like you belong here. And I want you to know that you belong here. I preached a few months ago on God is a generous host right before Thanksgiving. And this was one of the things that I was thinking about while I was preparing for this sermon. This, uh, these descriptions of he's intentionally preparing and lavishing blessing upon us. And he's welcoming us to his very table. And I want you to understand reading this psalm how unique a picture this is. Because if you read most of the Old Testament... What you'll see is that this psalm is a very big contrast. It's, it's almost an arresting contrast from the first five books of the Bible. So I want to give you a tip. If you're, if you're going to try to read the Bible in a year uh, and you get to Leviticus and Numbers and you're like, as all Bible reading plans do, they fall off. I want you to make a note about how those books start. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Moses, or the Lord spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. So the tent of meeting was where God's presence dwelled. And Moses was the leader of the Israelite people. He was the prophet, the one who spoke for God. Leviticus 1.1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. Saying, Moses couldn't go in the tent of meeting. He couldn't go in the presence of God. And that kind of prefigures all of Leviticus. What is Leviticus about? It's like, how do we create a place where you can be consecrated to the Lord so that you can go be in his presence? And then you get to Numbers chapter 1, and it starts very similarly. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting, saying, okay, if the Levitical system works, Moses, you can go and be in the presence of the Lord. But what it'll tell you is that Moses could not go any further than the outer section of the tent of meeting. He could not walk into the presence of God. That is the 
That's the picture of what God is to the people of God throughout scripture is God is welcoming us, but we can't be fully in his presence. And then you get to Psalm 23 and what is it a picture of? God welcomes you fully. You are welcome at my table. There is nothing hindering you from being with me. And isn't that what we just talked about? That the promise of Psalm 23, the promise of all scripture is God wants to be our God and we his people. We are going to be in the presence of God forever. There is nothing separating us anymore. We couldn't go any closer to God because of the sin that entangled us, the guilt that entangled us. But Jesus has done all that away. And so now this picture that God lays out the banquet table for us says, you're welcome at my table. I will fill your cup to the point where it overflows. There is nothing that keeps you away from me anymore. I love this last section of Psalm 23. And if you look down, you'll notice it. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice this in your footnotes. As it says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Probably the better way to translate that is I shall return to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then if you also go up to the restores my soul... Uh, commentators have made a note that it's probably better to say he will cause my soul to return. See, what does that mean? God is not leading us somewhere unfamiliar. God is not trying to take you to a place you've never been. Rather, Psalm 23, all of scripture is an invitation home. It's an invitation back to where we were always supposed to be, where we were originally. And I think that's what makes Psalm 23, as Martin Luther says, the mini Bible in the mini Bible of the Psalms, because it tells you the gospel in its full form. Sometimes we're tempted. If I were to ask you to share the good news of Jesus with somebody else, what you'll do is you'll say, well, we sinned against God, but Jesus came and redeemed us from our sin. And that's true. But I think it's a truncated version. It kind of leaves the big parts out. Because the good news of the gospel is that we were created for God. We dwelt in his presence. We knew him face to face. And yes, we sinned and fell away. and We needed Jesus to come redeem us. But one day we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That tears will be removed. All sorrows will be done away with. We will be in the presence of God. That's what scripture is pointing us to again and again and again. That is the hope that we hold besides still waters and in the valley of the shadow of death. You see, the gospel is that we were made for God and the good news is that we get to return to him. As Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so even when we wander, even when we're beside still waters, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us. Even in the presence of our enemies, God will abundantly welcome us. You see, the gospel is an invitation. It's to return home. And to dwell with God forever and ever. And as I close, as we start 2024, where are your eyes looking today? See, we all follow someone. I don't know anyone who just leads themselves. We're always looking to follow someone. And so who are you following and where are they taking you? Can they keep the promises that you've, and the expectations that you've placed on them? Is it your spouse? You know, my whole life revolves around my spouse. Can they uphold the expectations that you put on their lives? It's, maybe it's your job. 
Can your job uphold the weight of the expectations you put on them? Maybe it's your children. Can your children uphold the expectations that you place on them? Time and time again, as we go through the years, we put our expectations and our hopes on things that can't ultimately hold it, that fall apart. Friends, we have a good shepherd who's trying to lead us home. He's leading us beside still waters. He's leading us through the valley of shadow of death all so that we might be with him where we were created to be. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of Psalm 23. That's the hope of scripture. And I pray as simple as that is as a sermon, I pray that that's where our eyes are fixed, that that's what the longing of our hearts is, that you know what? We enjoy God's good world, but ultimately we want God himself. We want to be with him. And so good shepherd, would you lead us. So I pray that that's your confession of faith this morning, that Psalm 23, that we know that this is who God is. And you know what? We won't lack for anything we need. We won't fear whatever comes our way. And ultimately we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me pray for us. Father, this is your promise to us. This is something that we can put our expectations our lives, we could put them on you. And Lord, you're strong enough to shoulder the weight. Lord, you are our good shepherd. You lead us. Father, I pray this, for this year. We don't know necessarily where we're going. Some of us, we're going to have joyful seasons. Some of us are going to endure hardship and we're going to see the darkest parts of the valley of the shadow of death. But Lord, your promises remain the same. You are constant from day to day. And so Lord, I pray this morning that we will remind ourselves again that we don't lack for anything because you don't lack for anything. That we don't have to fear because you are in all circumstances and you have not left your throne today. But you will remain forevermore. And that your promise is sure that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That we will return home again. Lord, I pray for this upcoming year. I pray that you would bless it. And I pray that these would be the declarations of our heart, of a heart that knows you and follows you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.